Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by Besha Rodell. Besha is a critic and columnist for the New York Times Australia Bureau and the restaurant critic for Tea Magazine Australia. Born and raised in Australia, she was a restaurant critic in the U.S. for over a decade in Atlanta and Los Angeles, returning to her of Melbourne in 2017. She is a James Beard Award winner and acts as solo global critic for Food & Wine magazine, traveling extensively to pick the annual 30 best restaurants in the world. She lives in Melbourne with her husband, teenage son, and an array of pets. She's also one of my closest friends, so as you can imagine, being fellow critics and dear friends, we went on and on and on. It was hard to find a place to cut, so I decided to make this a two-part episode. So this week will be part one and next week will be part two. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Besha. Thanks for being here. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Could you please introduce yourself for listeners that might not know who you are? Who are those people? Lot. (laughs) Probably. Everyone. (laughs) Yeah. My name's Besha Rodell and I am currently the Australian restaurant critic for the New York Times which is a really weird thing to be, but that's what I am. I am the former restaurant critic for LA Weekly, which I was there for five years. And um, prior to that, I was the restaurant critic for Creative Loafing Atlanta for six years, back when, you know, there was kind of such a thing. That's where we met. That is where we met. You hired me as a freelance writer. But we were friends before that. Yes, we were. So when did you know that food was going to be a thing for you? I mean, it was always a thing in my family. Um, I grew up with a very food-focused family. My dad was kind of a Julia Child protege type. We actually lived in Boston for a little while when I was a kid, and um, he, you know, slightly befriended her. Um, but he was very old-school French type of cook. He liked to make cream sauces for everything and chocolate mousse and stuff. And my mother has a really interesting background, you know, very kind of her her mother was Midwestern. Her father was from Connecticut, but they ended up in Hollywood. Um, He was a screenwriter and, you know, he had a bunch of Syrian friends. So like even as a kid, she was always eating rice with yogurt with everything, you know, in the 40s. And so And then she was like a hippie in her 20s. So she got a lot of that kind of Eastern and Middle Eastern and whatever kind of, you know, influence into her cooking. So I just grew up with really good food. And it's still, um, even if it wasn't my profession, I think, you know, the first thing we ask each other when we call is, what are you having for dinner? You know, it's it's what we do together. Um, I now live in Melbourne and all of my siblings live there and most of our family activity is focused around cooking and eating and having picnics and stuff. But I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to do anything else. Um, And I kind of worked my way through college by waiting tables. Even prior to college, I was waiting tables. And basically, honestly, when I got out of college, like the thing that I knew about was was food because I'd been working in restaurants for so long. I think that there's a misperception that kind of journalism is um, something that you do if you're a good writer and you like to write, but it really helps to have an area of specialty. Like, (laughs) you know, my mother is a journalist, but she went to school for Southeast Asian studies. So, you know, that made her very hireable at the time in terms of knowing something about the world. And so for me, the only thing that I was even close to an expert in was restaurants, even more so than food, restaurants. 
So that only dawned on me um, once I started working in restaurants, how, how important it was going to be for my life to, to really make it a focus of my work was when I started working in restaurants, which would have been my early 20s. And you've already mentioned Boston, Australia. You have quite the kind of you know, yeah. story. Can you talk about where you were born and sure. kind of, you know, your migration story? Sure. It's really complicated and, and we could be here all day if I really got into it. But basically, the short version is I was born on a farm <laughs> in East Gippsland, uh, Victoria, very, very far away from anything, six hours from Melbourne. Um and uh, because my parents were hippies, basically. And um, my mother is American. My father's Australian. And he, they met in the US and he brought her back to Australia. Um, and then um, she, they broke up. She was remarried um, and she decided to come back to the US when I was a teenager. So I came with her and uh, lived all over the place. She is quite the vagabond. <laughs> um, and so lived in Denver, in Connecticut, in New York. I moved to California for a while, back to New York, moved to North Carolina, back to New York for college. Um, and then, you know, moved to North Carolina when I had my son. So I've lived really all over the U S and, um, more, you know, 20, I think it was 26 years in the U.S. altogether, and now I'm coming up on about 20 in Australia altogether. So it's about 50-50 almost. And you've kind of had a really nomadic life yourself, just like your mother. Yes. <laughs> Has food always been a tether? I think so. Um, certainly home cooking has been a tether. And I used to say that home was really wherever my mother was living. That was, you know, that was the only constant in my life was kind of her house, her kitchen, her pots and pans, her linens, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that has kind of changed since I had my own kid and now it's wherever my stuff is, you know. Um, and it is incredibly comforting to me that, you know, I'm still cooking the things that my parents cooked when I was a little kid. That makes me feel at home, absolutely. Whenever I move somewhere, though, it's really exciting to kind of incorporate those things from that new place into my life. And the weird thing is almost more than a tether, I'm always homesick for somewhere else. And I'm always <laughs> looking for food that I could get somewhere else. I mean, I'm really working on appreciating the things that are right in front of me. As like I not think, being able to get Mexican and in Australia. Mexican in Australia. Australia. Well, I mean, honestly... My husband, who's a chef, can cook really good Mexican. I have to, you know, he has to make his own tortillas because literally you can't get them in Australia. Well, you can, but you don't want to. Um, <laughs> but like, it's funny the things that you take for granted and then crave. Like I would kill for like a proper deli sandwich all the time. And Australia is full of Italians, but that's not an Italian thing. It's an Italian-American thing. And so I, it's just something that's been in my life. Like, you know, everywhere you go in the U.S., you can find, even though New York is like, Sure, it's easier in New York to get a good deli sandwich than it is in California, but you can drive, you know, to get one in California. You cannot in Australia. So I'm of mixed feelings about it because I also kind of believe that it's okay if some food is truly regional. If you have to go to Texas to get really good Texas barbecue, that's okay. Like it's nice if somebody can recreate it elsewhere, but it also is part of the joy of traveling, right? That you get to have things that you couldn't necessarily have at home. 
but yeah, man, Australia's really far away. <laughs> and so um, and I do want to talk about that eventually, yeah. but but you did just mention something I want a couple of things I wanted to ask you. Well, you talked about how food plays a role in your, you know, your immediate family. Did it change for you when you became a mom? Not that much, honestly. I mean, I was pretty determined to not have well look my son changed everything about my life like there's just no question about that but in terms of culture and my family culture i was really invested and remain invested in folding him into my family culture rather than changing my family culture um to suit him and i think that you know there are some ways obviously that you know i wasn't going out to nightclubs anymore but like I never fed him food that wasn't the food that I was eating. And um, we continued to have parties and stay up too late. And, we, you know, I was pretty young when I had him. So and none of my friends were having kids. But like he's now 17 and he has now turned out to be somebody who is incredibly adventurous in terms of food and loves to travel to eat. And, and makes mole from scratch. And makes mole from scratch. But you did. I remember he was you're plus one when you would go out because your husband Ryan is a chef. I mean, Felix at a young age, your son Felix was with you. So did, I mean, I know as I watch my own daughter eat foods, like it's like you rediscover them for the first time. Like like you were here the other day and it was her first time ever having hazelnut praline and a chocolate, Mm -hmm. which is like one of my favorite fancy chocolate flavors. And her mind was blown. So like did it changed for you in a positive way, even having him along. I mean, it just it made it. He is just like the best travel buddy ever. It just made it so that I I mean, you know, I, I'm one of those parents who's like, I just like made my best friend out of nothing. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, And so, yeah, absolutely. Showing him all those things and and teaching him how to cook and being really, really grateful that he loves all the things that I cook so much. It's funny because his comfort food, because when he was little, when we were living in Atlanta, his dad was working nights still. And um, we were actually pretty broke. It was funny. Like we, you know, I was a restaurant critic, but I wasn't making a ton of money. And so I would go eat at these fancy restaurants. But when I was cooking at home, I was cooking on a real budget. And I'm also a little bit lazy during the week cooking. And so I would make beans and rice most of the time or like he called them golden beans, like chickpeas with like lemon and garlic and parsley and chili, you know, with yogurt. <laughs> and that's his comfort food now. Like he when Ryan's not home and I'm like, what do you want me to make? He's always like, I want you to make beans and rice because that was the that was the thing that I used to make him when he was a little kid and he loved it. So, yeah, I mean, showing somebody else and being able to form somebody's taste from the get go was absolutely exciting. But it also just I think it fed into the pattern of my family. I'm the oldest of four to six siblings, depending on how you count them. Um, and, you know, so I definitely helped bring up a few of those kids. And and so Felix was almost just like the next in line for that to to kind of be brought into our family food culture. And thankfully, he like fit right in. I, I could really imagine him rebelling from it and being like, I don't like food. He did that a little bit with music. He's over that now, thank God. <laughs> but like taking the things that your parents are really obsessed with and saying, oh, I don't care about that because I'm different. And he did it a little with music, but he never did it with food, which is nice. 
as you mentioned, your husband is a chef and mm-hmm. has been for the better part of your relationship. The whole time, yeah. Um, well, he was also in a math rock band. Beforehand. He wasn't in a math rock band when I met him. Oh, really? No, that no? was kind of done. Oh. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't um, get to be a groupie. <laughs> you would have been the best. I know I would have been the best groupie. But, um, but what has that been like being... I guess the wife of a chef who's also a restaurant critic in the same town, not only for you, but also for him. Has it a, is it a strength? Is it a weakness or both? It's both. When we moved to Atlanta, we tried to do the thing where he was working at a restaurant. He was he, the first job he had in Atlanta was at Blue Point. And um, and I was a critic. And basically what that meant was that I ignored any restaurant that he had any part in. And that became more and more difficult. He he was the opening chef and actually for a while part owner of the Glenwood when it first opened in East Atlanta Village. And um, a couple of critics, including one of my own, Cliff, Buzzstock, <laughs> kind of was like, this place is amazing and wanted to write about it. And were we going to give him a Best Of Award? And Christian, which was, you know, a different publication. But it just became this thing where it was like really weird to try to ignore something in it. And that was a weakness. And then also there were instances where, you know, the original chef that he had worked for at Blue Point, Doug Turbish, opened another restaurant. And do I ignore that? I mean, this guy basically is responsible for having paid my rent for a little while. So like (laughs) there's a definite conflict of interest there. There's that. And, you know, we were feeling it out and I don't feel bad about anything that I did. I, I think that we were thinking about ethics first and foremost, but we also had to pay our rent. And basically for the last couple of years that we lived in Atlanta, he transitioned to corporate jobs. And we decided at that point that that was probably for the best um, because it just took away that conflict completely. Um, It also meant he was working daytime hours and had health insurance and all the things (laughs) that happened. So that's the downside is that it has had a really I would say overall negative effect on his career. I mean, when when we met and I was waiting tables and he was a chef, or cook at that point. He was pretty ambitious. He, you know, was the sous chef at Montrachet in New York um, in the early 2000s when Montrachet was still like a important restaurant in New York. And I think he showed a lot of his talent when he was in Atlanta that people started to recognize. And we kind of had to put a kibosh on that if we were going to, if I was going to continue to be a critic. And that became kind of set in stone when I moved to LA. And the folks at LA Weekly were pretty determined that they were happy to hire me. They wanted to hire me, but they did not want him to be working in restaurants, which is fair. I would have done the same thing if I was the editor of that paper. So that's the downside. The downside is, A, there's an ethical conundrum there. And B, one of us was going to have to put uh, some of our kind of ambition aside for the other. And I'm just way less hireable than he is. I can only do one thing. So, you know, he does have the option to do um, corporate stuff and, and that's what he's continued to do, nonprofit and corporate stuff. The upside is that he really is a secret weapon. And I cooked in restaurants for a little while, but not long enough to kind of understand the entire ecosystem. You know, I, I could never be a chef at a restaurant. I, I was a line cook for a little while. Um, but when I am struggling with why something isn't what I think it should be or what is going wrong in a restaurant. I can bring him in a lot of times. He will be the person who can tell me, you know, because if he was in that kitchen, he would know how to fix it. So he can he can say, you know, this chicken was cooked too hot. 
too quickly. <laughs> you know what I mean? That yes. you like the, the the skin is very crispy, but the underside has still got the fatty bits. So like, you know, he also just is a window into restaurant culture and what's going on. And, you know, again, I had that when I started. I came directly from working in restaurants to being a critic. Basically, I was still managing restaurants in North Carolina when I got hired in Atlanta. So I was very aware at that point, what are all the things that are happening in restaurants behind the scenes and what, you know, what could go wrong and all of that stuff. But that was now more than 15 years ago. So like things have changed. He's much more kind of still, even though he's not in restaurant restaurants, he's still, you know, part of that conversation is still happening in his world. So, and I, I feel like I come at it from a very industry based place especially because when I started, I was coming straight from the industry, but he's always been in the industry still. And I have a lot of people in my life who are in the industry. You know, um, my my brother and sister, both a long time restaurant industry people. And so he he's really it's more of a I think it's it's more of a benefit than a downside to me. <laughs> if you asked him, I'm not sure what the answer would be. But um, one thing I mean, that was kind of my next question is, you know, I always found as someone who was your colleague and your friend that you did have that kind of inside baseball thing when it came to restaurant criticism, so much so that you were looking out more in a way that I hadn't seen with critics or just traditional critics looking out more for the restaurateur, or the chef and the people working in than the diner itself. And I mean, I do feel as a critic, you kind of choose a side, not in a not in a competitive way, but just like in terms of who you're going to advocate for. Was that intentional on your part? Like, was that in your DNA at that point or was it something that was accidental? Um, I wouldn't say that it's accidental and I'm not sure that I like chose a side, but I will say that I have some pretty kind of for people who have followed me, there are some pretty mean reviews out there that I've written. Um, Totally. And they, and, but they usually, you're right. They usually directed at people who I feel like are, to use a good Australian term, taking the piss, which kind of, you know, (laughs) it's like there's, there's a cynicism there. There's, there's a thing of like, we could maybe get this over on, on these people and charge them a bunch of money and nobody will notice because we're the hot new thing. Um, And that, that's where I get really annoyed, you know, and and don't feel bad about being mean. I think that I have been really critical uh, in some cases of my favorite chefs. I've been the most critical because I know that they can do better. But yeah, I think of myself in those circumstances almost as like trying to be a very, very literary but tough consultant almost, you know. Well, that was the that was probably one of the best pieces of advice you ever gave me as a critic was what are they trying to do and are they accomplishing it? Right. And um, that's so important. Mm-hmm. Um obviously you want to give the consumer, I mean there's only 20, 30 people who work in the restaurant and there's thousands of people that you're writing for, so you want to give the consumer absolutely an idea of should they go there and spend money, but it is also my goal with a lot of reviews to for if this is the right restaurant for for somebody, it's not going to be the right restaurant for everybody, you know, and I want the person who it's the right restaurant for to read it and think this is a positive review. And it's the if they read it and it's the wrong restaurant for that person that they read it as a negative review, like utilitarian. That, yeah. Which we've discussed in the past. Yeah. It should be used as a service. It's what a we're service. Doing. Yeah. Yes. And, and that and that sometimes people don't view. I mean, there are critics 
that are more of an experiential critic, like you're entertaining. I'm definitely not one of those. I'm like, this is what it's like. But I think what I was trying to get at also is that I just remember I've seen you now as a critic and at Creative Loafing, LA Weekly, and now at the New York Times. Chefs just love you. I mean, like, I guess that's why I, I think that's what I'm saying. Like, even if you were harsh, like they're like, oh, OK, thanks, Besha. <laughs> well, it's like, funny because they want it. I think that they the more way so I than write, others. Yeah. Though. Well, I think that the way that I write that they can tell. Look, it's such an intimate relationship. It's a very weird and intimate relationship because you are thinking harder about what they do than anybody except maybe like their mom. You know what I mean? Like nobody else takes the time, visits multiple times, spends weeks thinking about that. What are they trying to do here and how well are they doing it? So if you do it well, I think that chefs recognize that, that you've really put a lot of thought and effort. And, you know, I call and do fact checking. And so they know that I'm doing the work and I'm not just swanning in there and coming out and saying, oh, this is what I think. And there are a lot of critics like that. And I'm not knocking it. I mean, a lot of times those folks are the ones that are the most entertaining, but it's not, you know, that's not who I am. And I never set out to kind of build a cult of personality around myself or whatever. I'm very, very invested in hoping that people do well, hoping that the cities that I live in um, get better, um, hoping that the conditions of the restaurants that are in those cities are good for everyone, which means that the workers aren't miserable. I mean, honestly, when I'm pretty critical, often it's because I can tell the waiters are miserable, which means somebody is treating them like crap. So like I want I want the waiters, the cooks to to be working somewhere that is good for them. I want the owners to be making money so that it's sustainable. And I want people who go there to feel like it's worth going there. So all of those things kind of come together in terms of what am I trying to do? And yeah, I've said it before, like if I'm thinking of an audience and I'm not always, but sometimes it helps me to think of an audience. I really think about the line cooks in the city because those are the people who care the most about food. Often they're the ones that are working the hardest to make the food great. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. You're listening to part one of my interview with Besha Rodell. And there's like almost like a lot of empathy in your writing when it's not so, you know, you've never been and there's tons of types of critics in this world all over the world or not just in the U.S. But you've never been someone who was like really concerned with the glamour and the fame and all that. It's just really what you love. Yeah, it is what I love. Yeah. And it's an industry that I came from that I love, that I want to see move forward in a positive way. And I have a lot of sympathy for the kind of idea that like we might have to dismantle the whole thing and put it back up again. I'm, you know, it's not my. I mean, that's my next question is, 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 (laughs) you know, something I've been talking to a lot of my guests about was about the post COVID during COVID relationship between the restaurateur and its employees and, and the restaurateur and its diners. I feel like it's really evolving. It's really strange. Like one of my friends who lives in Germany, she's like, America's so weird. You guys like raise money for your restaurants. Like in Germany, we don't do that, you know, and I guess we're much more community based or something. But um, I feel like we're being called in a lot to save restaurants when like the owner's driving a Maserati <laughs> sure. in mean, the U.S. What yeah, do you think? I mean, look, there are a lot of restaurants that are ego projects. So the person started out wealthy. They decided they wanted a restaurant. 
And then they didn't realize that, like, it's a razor thin margin thing and they're people who have made money. So they're not used to losing money or breaking even. And then they, you know, whatever. Um, There aren't very many people in the world who have gotten rich off of restaurants. There are a couple, but, you know, not very many. And you really have to do it at scale. Those are big restaurants, often corporations, franchises, yeah, yeah, whatever. So, yeah, it is a totally weird thing. And and they didn't do that in Australia either because the government did it like, you know, that's why I'm asking, because it has to be weird to have been part of this restaurant world in the U.S. and be watching it from afar in Australia oh, for the past. How many years now? Five. It'll be four in September. Um, Look, watching America from Australia is very strange (laughs) in every kind of way over the last four years. Um, And that's certainly one of them. But, you know, the, the kind of changes in restaurant culture and the kind of reckonings that are happening are pretty similar in Australia. Although, yeah, there are so many more social services in Australia and it just wasn't brought to a head in the same way. Because restaurant workers were not being put at risk of COVID without health insurance <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, Australia has universal health care. The government did bail out employers. Um, you know, employees got paid through what in Melbourne was a five month lockdown, basically. And when I say lockdown, I mean, like, not allowed to leave your house, not like, oh, we maybe shouldn't go somewhere without a mask. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think. Those kinds of issues where people were having to really see that these workers were not being treated as essential, but as expendable. (laughs) And that was so black and white here and so horrifying. And I just think that it exposed so much of the precariousness of this profession. Whereas in Australia, it's not a precarious profession in the same sense. You do have protections, not that they don't get abused, they get abused all the time, but it's just it's not the same equation at all. So more of the reckonings that are happening there are happening around harassment, assault and people being underpaid, um, wage theft, that kind of stuff. So it's just it's a little less heightened, I would say. But those conversations are, are happening there. When you say that you're in favor of tearing it all down and building it back up again, what does that mean? Um, I just think that the way that restaurants have been built, which if you look in America in particular, I mean, it would take me an hour and a half to get into this in in (laughs) detail, but really it is a system that is built on the aftermath of slavery. And so many of the things that are built into that system um, are based on, you know, people who are viewed as less worthy in culture and so therefore are treated worse. And I think that there needs to be a different system that that restaurants are built on a to just be more equitable. So we're all like better people, <laughs> but also to create an economic model that isn't based on, you know, exploitation. And most economic models that are based on exploitation are not actually sustainable long term in a culture that is supposedly a democracy and all that stuff. You know, you, you eventually the exploited will revolt. And it's really interesting. I I haven't followed it as much here, but certainly in Australia, the thing that they're dealing with right now is that there's just nobody who wants to work in restaurants. I was just about to ask you about this because restaurants are having a real problem in Atlanta finding workers, not in Atlanta, I mean, beyond. But I mean, some people believe it's a two part problem. 
the experience of working in the restaurant and everything that falls under that umbrella being the way you're treated by guests and by your boss. And then also the assistance that's being doled out by our government. And it's been extended. Biden extended it. Uh, it's it's causing problems, I think, you yeah. know, which sucks. I mean, like, but like, wouldn't you rather take a check from the government than go get abused by some anti-masker and like a s- restaurant? Well, I think if the government check is a better option than work, then that is pretty indicative of the problems that the industry faces, you know. And if you can't pay people enough and protect them well enough to make it so that that's a more kind of lucrative and, you know, preferable option for workers, then your model probably sucks. I mean, you know, and and it isn't the fault of individual restaurateurs. They are going on the model that has been built and has been around for, you know, 150 years at this point. But it is going to take some kind of visionary people to take a look at it and say, okay, how could we do this differently? And you see the beginning of that with people trying to do Okay, this is going to we're going to do tip sharing instead. We're going to, you know, but there are little incremental things. And look, the same thing happened in publishing. And I knew it 15 years ago when I first started at Creative Loafing that, you know, I got in just as the, you know, Craigslist crashed the ads for the classified ads for alt weeklies, which was the bread and butter of alt weeklies for 50 years if not more. And I looked at the sales team just trying to do the same thing that they've always done and not nobody was innovating. Nobody was saying, what are we going to do? I mean, everyone was like, "Okay, we have to start a blog. But nobody had thought about how to monetize that. Everybody was willing to just give away their content for free. It took only a couple. And it's still this way. You know, the New York Times is one of only a handful of newspapers in the world that has figured out how to actually be profitable and do it in this new ecosystem where, you know, ads aren't going to get you that much because internet ads are worthless almost. So (laughs) somebody is going to have to do the the same thing for restaurants. And sadly, in publishing, it's only the huge folks who, who have gotten away with it so far. Nobody has figured out how to do it on a much smaller scale, a more local scale. And for restaurants, I think that that's the challenge of the next 20 years is how do you build a sustainable model that is not based on exploitation, that gives people a real career path, not just I got to get through college, I'm going to get through my early 20s, that has, you know, all the protections that other professions have and that there is a end game for cooks, waiters, managers, where they can see themselves actually being properly successful in life that without having to leave the restaurant industry. I mean, honestly, I might have stayed in the restaurant and I loved it if there was any path for me towards any kind of security and there wasn't. And I mean, look, journalism <laughs> isn't that much better, but it's probably more fun. <laughs> you get to do a lot. Um, so speaking of journalism, you've held really impressive jobs. You were the critic for Creative Loafing. You were the critic for LA Weekly after Jonathan Gold moved to the Times. And you are now the critic for Australia Fair at New York Times. In addition to that, at the New York Times, in addition to that, you were, before the pandemic, traveling all over the world for this food and wine travel and leisure gig, which was literally 
the best restaurants in the world at your fingertips. And as someone who's known you, like one of the things you always wanted to do was to be able to travel willy nilly, but having a kid and bills to pay, that makes it difficult. What was it like to all of a sudden have the best of the best at your fingertips? Um, Did it demystify things? How did it change your relationship to like kind of aspirational eating? You know what I mean? It changed it hugely. So the assignment was pick the 30 best restaurants in the world and do it basically by yourself. Now, we had a panel um, of really great, super diverse panel from all over the world that gave us basically nominations. So every year, and I did it for one and a half years, basically, I I stopped midway um, because of COVID the second year. But it was about 120 restaurants, I think I ate at um, in four months the first year. That's insane. And these are 120 of the best restaurants in the world. Yes. But I will say the thing that kind of was different about what we were trying to do was um, because it was partly because of the thinking of Melanie Hanch, who was the kind of lead on it in at Food and Wine, but also because we were partnering with Travel and Leisure. We were really looking for those places that when you go to a city, you tell somebody you've got to eat here. Much more so than the kind of world's 50 best type of thing where it's like the fanciest restaurants, because frankly, and this is what changed for me or w- what solidified some of the things I had thought maybe was true is that a lot of those restaurants are the same. Like many of them are trying to be Noma. Those that are not trying to be Noma are kind of, you know, doing this very stylized, you know, often molecular thing that can be quite cold, you know, sort of in the Alinea model. And if you are going to Lebanon, you know, (laughs) and you're in Beirut, like you don't necessarily want like an Alinea experience. You want to go and get the like Lebanese breakfast of your dreams, right? So the place that we ended up putting on the list from Beirut was a neighborhood breakfast place with one guy cooking. So it, it did allow me to do the kind of exploration that I wanted to do rather than just eat in a ton. Was of- it Swan Oyster Depot one of your Swan spots? Oyster Depot yes. was one of, and it was so funny because look, I ate at some of the places in San Francisco and California that you would expect would be on that kind of list. Um, on, on one of them on the same, I'm not going to say which one, because we kind of said we weren't going to talk about people who didn't make the list. But like <laughs> you could probably figure out it's one of a couple that in, would in San Francisco that you would kind of assume. And I ate at Swan Oyster Depot for lunch and then at that place for dinner. And it was an amazing meal. My dinner was an amazing meal. But I was just like, which one of those did I enjoy more? Which one did I have more fun? Which one would I take somebody back to? And Swan Oyster Depot won all of those hands down. It I used was, to go once a week for lunch it when was I was in San Francisco. One of the most fun experiences I had of the whole trip. And it made me feel like I was in the city that I was in. I was talking to people on either side of me. The food was delicious. Like it was just, I mean, I would kill to go back there. Whereas the other one is kind of a place where you're like, I've been there, tick the box, like next, you know, and a lovely meal, but just you could have it almost anywhere in the you world. Don't really, you've never been interested in collecting Michelin stars. No, no, I haven't. And frankly, at this point, there are very few of those restaurants that I'm interested in. And it's difficult because you can't tell from reading about them in those types of guides, which ones are worth going to and which ones are not. And so that was a huge part of what I was trying to do with World's 30 Best was to say, 
if you're in this city and this place that has those Michelin stars is not on this list, but I've been to that city, maybe that's the one to skip because I will have eaten there. <laughs> I definitely ate there, you know, but there's only a handful of them from around the world that really blew my mind and felt really essential to me as a diner and a world traveler. Like, and, um, and, you know, I would say the list ended up being about 50% those types of restaurants and about 50% not. But we were really looking for a sense of place also. Like, if you were eating there, you really couldn't be anywhere else. You couldn't get this meal in Paris or London or whatever, unless you were in Paris or, you know. But what's the place that is singular to this part of the world? So, for instance, when I was in South Africa, I ate at a couple of very nice high end restaurants in Cape Town and Johannesburg. And, like, for the most part, I could have been anywhere in the world. And also, um, Cape Town in particular is a really, it's an African, it's a black city. But then you go up into these restaurants and they're totally white spaces. And that felt really odd to me. Like it didn't represent the African part of <laughs> the culture there almost at all. And so what I ended up picking was a restaurant that was like out in the townships. And it was a woman cooking the kind of food that they used to have um, at these kind of how, you know, almost, you know, African style bed and breakfast where you come for a meal and you would stay. They called them Akasi. So um, that was the place that I went that, you know, it wasn't fancy, but I felt like I was in somebody's home. The food was amazing. And I got an actual taste of South African culture that I couldn't get in another city, in another country, in another place. Even though there are really beautiful, fancy restaurants in South Africa, again, they just didn't, they didn't appeal to me because they weren't doing anything that nobody else is doing and because they could have been anywhere in the world. Well, I think that's a really smart way to write this because it makes it much more accessible for mm -hmm. everyone. Sure. Like, I mean, my dad and I were just talking about Bourdain for another episode. And I was like, even one thing that was great about him was that even if you weren't able to go to these places, like he took you to go eat there. Mm -hmm. um, and for someone like I, one of my favorite things you've ever written was actually like one of your Twitter bios. And it was like taking the city bus to L.A.'s like fanciest restaurant and thrift store heels yeah. or something like that. <laughs> and it's so you. So what was it like to be living this opulent life, going to all of these super fancy restaurants when that's not even something that you like value, you know, and having that opportunity? I mean, did it like I said, did it demystify that part of it, the status part of it? I guess. Look, I am not. Um, it's funny because you mentioned that that tweet and I and that was my pin tweet for a long time because I was I, I said it was my 14 word autobiography. That's like the story of my life is like I'm taking a bus to, you know, go eat a patina in my thrift store heels. And that was a true story. But like there was also this thing that happened a couple months ago, or maybe a year ago, where somebody had tweeted that they wanted to they only wanted to read about food from somebody who had had to make $20 work for a week's worth of food or had been on food stamps. And I replied to that and said, I was on food stamps when I started writing about restaurants. And I was, I had moved to North Carolina to have my son and my husband was working at a restaurant and making $30,000 a year. And my sister, my teenage sister moved in with us because my mother had moved away and she was finishing high school. She didn't want to leave North Carolina and so there was four of us living in this like tiny little three room house living on $30,000 a year. And I wasn't working because I had a newborn baby and I was on WIC, which is, you know, the women and infant children, basically food stamp program for young, for pregnant women and, and people with infants. Um, 
And so I literally knew how to make, <laughs> you know, how, and, and WIC is different than food stamps. Food stamps, you can regular food stamps, you can buy whatever you want with them. WIC, you can only buy certain things. So it has this like extra layer of shame where like you bring up <laughs> this like block of cheese and they're like, you're not allowed to have that cheese. You know, like you can only have the shit cheese. Like, so that government cheese, it's government cheese. That's the, that's where the phrase comes from is you get this government cheese. So I have done that. And part of why at that point in my life, and even as a little girl, I didn't grow up with any money, like fancy restaurants represented something really magical to me. They still do. Like I, the, the status of them is important to me, but more in the sense that like, I don't feel like I belong in them, except <laughs> maybe in the back of the house. You know what I mean? Like I, I like to go to places that People look at me in my thrift store best and it's like, she doesn't belong here. That makes it like gives me shitty sommelier yeah, all those yes, years ago. Yeah, yeah. You, you're like there to review the restaurant. I know. And Ugh. so that gives me a thrill. And it's part of it's funny because it's uh, it's part of why anonymity still matters to me, because when I go to a restaurant and I'm recognized, that's one thing that you know happens all the time. But like people think of it as like, oh, they're going to treat you so great. Um, and they would treat you badly if they didn't know who you were. And that is true sometimes. But the real magic happens when you go to a really fancy restaurant. They don't know who you are. They can tell that you don't quite belong there. And then they try to just make it the best night of your life. Like that is to me the ultimate kind of this is a great restaurant. This is not just a good restaurant. This is a restaurant where they understand that people are trying to come here for like a once in a lifetime thing and they may not be able to afford it. Or it may be their once in a 10 year thing. And let's just even though they're going to spend way less money than everyone else, let's make it the most amazing thing. So, look, I still love fancy restaurants. I just don't like them for the sake of them being fancy. And in recent years, I've seen a switch to I think we've talked about this before, too. There's there's really like a bunch of different kinds of cooking. And I think there's more than two. I used to have a very binary vision of it where it was like ego driven cooking or kind of somebody doing something, a devotion, like devotional cooking. So an example of devotional cooking would be like Evan Funky in Los Angeles, who has the restaurant Felix, who is just like making pasta that he learned from the grandmas in Italy. Like he's just trying to make the most perfect, beautiful expression of the Italian food that he has learned. And then ego driven food would be like somebody being like, I have created this masterpiece from my own <laughs> genius, you know? And I think that there's a way in between those, which is where some of the really great chefs these days, you know, I would say Renee Redzepi is one of them where it's like the devotion is to the ingredient or to the location or to the knowledge, the knowledge, but it's not so ego driven that it's just like, I need to show you all of the tricks that I have. It's funny. I took my son Felix on the Asian portion of the round the world thing. He was 15 at the time. And we ended up in this restaurant in Seoul that was like, you know, a giant marble room with three tables in it. And, you know, I love Seoul, too. I did not love this restaurant. The food was just really precious, not particularly delicious. I think I might know which one. Yeah, you might. (laughs) Um, And they completely didn't. I mean, it was me and my 15 year old kid. They were like, what are you doing here? And never kind of got over the fact that we shouldn't be there. And so Felix started. He was so funny. He was like. When me and Jeff Bezos were <laughs> hanging out in our Ferraris as loud as he could, I was like, Felix, shut up. I love him. <laughs> but the brilliant thing that he said out of that, we got this dish and it was like a stick 
with <laughs> like a twig with like flowers on it and it tasted like a twig you know and felix was like i love how the richer you are the more likely people are to be like yeah have a stick <laughs> eat the stick that'll be four hundred dollars and he's right like a lot of those types of meals are now like you know then there's not a lot of pleasure except kind of the like ooh, you could do this like you can do this but i'll never stop loving fancy restaurants and i love the feel when you walk into one and the tinkle and the noise of people talking, the tinkle of glasses, the sound of the kitchen. I love that whole I've, thing. I've forgotten what that's like. See, unlike you, who has been eating in restaurants and reviewing them for the New York Times like for months now, it's just been so weird. Sometimes I'll just text you and be like, your life is weird. That's this week's episode. Thanks for joining me and thank you to Besha for taking time to speak with us about her story. You can follow her as Besha Rodell on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to keep up with me on social media, you'll find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. Please don't forget to rate and review because it helps other people find me. Next Wednesday, we're going to pick up with part two of my interview with Besha. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Dream, Dine podcast network.